Resident Evil Lighting Specialist to Arc Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Scott Sullivan joins us from Novato, California, where he is president of Sound Vision, the highly respected Bay Area custom integration firm that he founded back in 1998. Scott and I have crossed paths many times over the past 20 years, when first he was a passionate attendee at the CDM Management Conference, and in more recent years, a vocal participant in the HTSA buying group meetings. I've been remiss about sitting down with Scott and talking about his business in depth, so I felt like what better way to make up for lost time than to share that conversation here on the podcast. Scott Sullivan, thanks for joining us today to tell us a little bit about your career and to share some of your residential tech insights. Uh, happy to be here. I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I, I love that you love talking about what you do. Um, that, like I said, makes my job easier as a press person, as a reporter uh, and interviewer. Um, I realize that doing this on the podcast is kind of weird since we haven't sat down and talked, but I'm I'm kind of weird at trade shows or um, conferences where that making that first connection with somebody, even if I feel like I know them and I've seen them so many times, sometimes it's just an awkward thing for me to make that first icebreaker conversation. And for some reason, this has become a great icebreaker for me. So bear with me while we we like sort of let it all uh, out there to talk about your career and uh, you know give me some of your history and insights into what you do. So. Um, one of the first things that jumped out at me, what I didn't realize you were um, an employee of Panamax back in the early days. You served as a national sales manager. So what um, initially connected you to that company, which appears to be your first connection to the custom integration industry? Yeah, I, I didn't even know that industry existed <laughs> uh, and, and stumbled into Panamax through a newspaper ad because they were looking for a customer service rep. And I was in construction at the time and and uh, just kind of filling a gap and looking to not work in the rain anymore. <laughs> so stumbled into Panamax and, and I truly feel like I won the lottery. You know what I mean? It was such a great place to land. What a magnificent opportunity. And they served several industries, right? They served the telecom industry and the computer industry and the copier industry. But, but fortunately, I got coupled with a fantastic woman named Bonnie Perella. And Bonnie took me under her wing and uh, kind of she she was an industry vet and she she showed me an industry I had no idea existed. And it was just such a fun place. Hmm. So, yeah, over time, uh, when Bonnie left Panamax, I was able to transition into her role and take over as the national sales manager for this channel. And. And we were able to go to HTSA back then as a vendor. And I remember thinking, wow, these these are the business people in our industry, you know what I mean? Not necessarily yeah. just the, the zealots, but the people who, who look at things differently. And, and that was super fun for, for me back there as a vendor. And then every other week, Jeremy, I got to, to get on an airplane and, and travel to another region where one of our reps would pick me up and drive me around and, and introduce me to the, the dealers in their territory. And I've, I'd have done it for free. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was it was so much fun. I mean, all the people were nice. They would talk about the stuff they did. And I, I, I didn't go pitch Panamax. That wasn't my strategy. Mm -hmm. What I would do is just go and ask them about their businesses. And, and for those of us that are in this industry, 
our business is usually one of our favorite topics. You know, it's, right. the, it's our baby. And so these guys would open up and just tell me everything. It was awesome. They, I mean, I would look at their their, their size, both in revenue and, and headcount and what their org structures look like and what their facilities look like and their proposals and their drawings and how their people presented themselves. And, and I just I started paying attention. And, uh, and then the fun thing for me is that when I go see a guy and see what he was doing well, I'd make note of that. And then I'd sometimes share some of his techniques with the next guy I talked to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or what you didn't do well with. Well, you know, this guy does great with that. I got to introduce you to this guy. He's terrific at that. You guys might really get along. And so I just kind of did that, you know, naturally, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I tr- almost made an effort to not talk about Panamax when I was calling on guys and and just get to know them and see who they were. And, and once they realized that I was just a regular guy that they could trust, then I'd say, you know, here's what I would do with Panamax. I would bring in these SKUs and I would present them like this. And, and here's the opening order I would do. And, and by the way, at the end of six months, if you're sitting on anything that's not moving, send it back, I'll send you a check. So there'll be zero risk on this. And, mm-hmm. and I'll, I want to help you succeed. And the product was good. And uh, so, yeah, it was just a, an unbelievable opportunity. Now, had you um, had any, I, I, I see that you'd studied commun- computer engineering and as well as economics, and apparently surfing and lacrosse as well came into yeah. your college life uh, style, at least. But uh, from like from eighty six to ninety was when you're at UC Santa Cruz. Yeah, and, and I, I went there to surf, uh, and I was a computer <laughs> engineering major. And I remember, like maybe third quarter freshman year, I'm taking eight o'clock calculus Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But, but Jeremy, typically the surf's best uh, in the morning because mm-hmm. there's there's no wind. And so I was missing too many classes. And and I, I don't mean to brag, but but Santa Cruz is a pass-fail college. And, and I got a P in that class. <laughs> and I think it was by the skin of my teeth. And that was when I went, man, this computer engineering is not conducive to my surfing. Uh, and, and I'd taken a general ed class the quarter before, you know, intro to microeconomics. And I thought, well, this is just common sense. So I switched my major for the primary reason that I didn't want it to interrupt my surfing time. <laughs> okay, so you're more of an econ guy. Um, yeah. So, so really, your your tech. Um, I talked to so many people and want to ask them when was the earliest inclination that you're going to be in the tech space of some sort. You know, whether it was taking stuff apart and putting it back together when you're a kid, or you know, being into you know audio, being a musician, something like that. So. Was was your work at Panamax your first real connection with tech, other than the failed attempt at computer engineering? Because no, I mean I was a nerd, and so mm. in high school, we I was very fortunate that I went to a high school that had an exceptional uh, computer science program back in the early '80s, okay. and I had a professor named Ray Schrick that was just fantastic. And so we were programming in BASIC and programming in Pascal, and then we learned assembly language. And it was, uh, or, or maybe got a taste of it, but but that I was drawn to that. And I had a few friends. We were kind of the nerds there that were doing that stuff. And so I think that that aided me a ton in understanding the systems we did. So that when I went and got trained on how to program Crestron systems, it wasn't so alien to me. You know what I mean? It, it seemed like it was pretty simple. It was just another programming platform. I had I had that benefit. And the other super cool thing I had was my my high school had an architectural program. Hmm. So I took three years of architecture in high school. Wow. 
we're doing primarily residential, but we're designing houses and, you know, green sheets and T-squares and vellums and ink. And this was way before CAD existed. But my teacher was a builder. And so it, it kind of everything came together that that by the time I got to Panamax, I understood construction from architecture. I'd worked in construction just because, you know, after college, wasn't sure what to do and stumbled into that. Uh, so I'd, I'd had some hands-on experience in the trades and the architecture and the programming. And of course, I loved stereos and music as much as the next guy back then. I mean, that was when CD players came out. <laughs> you know, sure. music sounded amazing. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it, it, this industry just seemed to capture all of that. I, again, I, I feel like I won the lottery to be so lucky to be in, to have found this industry that, that who knew existed. Right. Yes. Well, unfortunately, so many that still don't realize it exists, but you know, there are key people in your market that do, and that's what keeps you in business. What about um, that transition then from Panamax to, to owning your own integration firm? It looks like there's a bit of an overlap there where you... There maybe was. Were I mean, Henry something. Moody owned Panamax back then, and he is a magnificent man. And, and him and Bill Pollock, who was the president, you know, they, they knew that I started this side business and we were doing, you know, Dish Network and Direct TV installs. And my brother was doing the work and I was kind of, you know, I had two cell phones, the one for Panamax and the one for Pacific Satellite. Uh, and, and we were putting up satellite dishes. And and then a friend of mine offered me to uh, a job to move up to Sacramento and he's going to pay me a bunch of money to come run sales for his his company. And I took that job and I was going to leave Panamax. And then I thought about it and thought, you know, I've already had somebody pay me what felt to me like a lot of money um, to to work for them. I felt like I've checked that box. And so I called my buddy back and I said, you know, I I don't think I'm going to come. I got this little side business. I'm going to throw myself at this and see if I can build it into something. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, a great friend of mine from high school. And he goes, great call. Wish you nothing but success. Now, he sold that company for north of $100 million, uh, you know, 20 years later and has done very well. And and I imagine I probably would have done just fine there, too. But I I don't regret a second because uh, this industry is fun. The people that we meet at CD, at HTSA, the other tradesmen we get to work with in our local market, they're my kind of people. Yeah. Well, what what were the early... uh, you know, you know, transition from that satellite business where you finally committed to being a f- full-time owner of an integration firm and, and it's what it is as far as name, sound vision today. Um, what was the sort of transition point to become a bigger time integration company versus well, a satellite guy? Back then, um, well, I felt if I, if I was going to throw myself at it, I didn't want to be a big satellite company. I mean, that didn't really have any <laughs> appeal. Um but uh, I remember selling my first $13,000 Fujitsu Plasma TV. Oh, yeah. Which seemed like a, a million dollars at the time. Uh, and <clears throat> But I, I'd had the good fortune of really seeing under the veil of so many great integration companies that, that my mm-hmm. thought was, this was right after 9-11 when I threw myself at it full time where traveling didn't seem so appealing because it was so okay. difficult. Yeah. And I thought, you know, Amy and I were talking about having kids. Um so I didn't want to be traveling all the time. And I felt like I'd, I'd gotten an education in the industry. Literally, like if you were going to start a company in this industry, let's say you were a Harvard Business School student and you were going to start a company in this industry, 
And he wanted to go out and interview integrators, all the best integrators across the country to see how they do everything to kind of create a cookbook. I don't know if, if you were doing that, if you'd have gotten a better opportunity than what I had given to me. Hmm. On, well, you know, well, Panamax paid me to go out and edu get an education in the industry and then allowed me to stay there working there while starting this company. And, and it, it just I had a, a support structure around me that could not have been more supportive. And I'm in incredibly grateful to Bill Pollock over at Panamax and Henry Moody over at Panamax, the, the, the owner at the time. And these guys and Bonnie Perella, who taught me the industry uh, to to have gotten that that gift, you know, so that I didn't have to figure things out. I just, and, and then Jeremy, that, that what was amazing was I knew all these guys. And so as I'm, as I'm running into the struggles that, that every one of us in this industry runs into, I had like a, a team of mentors standing by that I could call and ask questions and, and, see, you know, I've gotten, I'd gotten to go to Leon Shaw's place and David Young's place and, and, uh, Jeff Hoover's place. And it was just some of these iconic players in the industry. I'd gotten to go gramophone when Brian Hudkins was running gramophone and, and what Joe Barrett was doing uh, Barrett's. I, I got to go see what all these different flavors looked like. Um, and then I got to kind of try to glean what, what flavor would work in this market. And then the other thing that I was incredibly lucky is that, that here in the San Francisco Bay area, at least in the North Bay where I am, there was no industry leader, you know, engineer environments was here, but they were covering the Bay area and, and just this gigantic, you know, they were going everywhere. And, and so here in this little North San Francisco, North Bay market was somewhat fragmented. Right. And, and so I got to start in a market where there wasn't really a known market leader. And I feel like I got to do that in, in the San Francisco Bay area, starting in 2000, I mean, that was when the tech boom was really kicking in. So I feel like we're having, we're experiencing as a, as a, as a race, as human, humans on this planet are experiencing a wealth creation event here in the Bay area. That's unprecedented in the history of the world, you know, with, with your apples and, and Googles and Facebooks and Adobe's and Salesforce's and uh, Twitter's and all these other Tesla's, these companies that are here that are that have billion and trillion dollar market caps. Well, that money is flowing through our market, and so we've got a, a, a inherent group of people here that love tech and have virtually unlimited funds and are looking for a partner to help them get creative. So if we're going to start a business in this industry and you could pick a time and place in the history of the world, this wouldn't be a bad choice. <laughs> so when you, when you're seeing this opportunity and you're full, putting yourself into this full time now, um, and you've taken all of these lessons and insights from around the country, what does that model look like for you? What are you saying? This is what my company is going to look like. Is it unique because of that tech boom being right there that you, you do something like different than all these others you've seen with just the lessons that they've taught you? Or is there a kind of a model that says, I want it to be this way. I want it to be, have this kind of a showroom. What, what was that initial business like? I don't know how, I mean, I, I discovered D tools back then, you know, that was liberating to, to help us, be able to document and do things more than just a room or two. Uh, so that, that was a huge impact on our ability. 
And I, I didn't know what I was doing from running a business standpoint, because there's just no classes for that. So so I was really hungry for that kind of stuff. And I was going to the the CE Pro management conferences and mm-hmm. kind of really what I was doing was I had my filter on and I was listening for who was asking questions. I still do that in HTSA, CD or whatnot. Yeah. Try to listen to who's answering, asking interesting questions and then go talk to them later. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I was really interested in was uh, revenue per head. Okay. You know, if we look at this industry, what I didn't want to do was go have somebody tell me how to run a business that was doing a million and a half dollars in revenue with 17 people, mm. right? Because that guy's not making any money. And, and, and I feel like profitability is the responsibility of a good business owner. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, I felt like revenue per head was a easy way to see the profitability of a company. So once, once I, I'd look at the CE Pro 100 and that was one of the things I would look at. I wanted to understand who was doing north of $300,000 of revenue per head because that was somebody I wanted to talk to. You know, that's somebody I, I wanted to see what and how because I feel like in our industry, efficiency is the, the secret, right? Yeah. The, the company that's the most efficient is going to be the winner. And so I've just kind of been a fanatic about how to create efficiency so I, I, I read business books like crazy. I read, uh, you know, my, my buddy Navot Shoresh, another guy runs a great business. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I trade business books back and forth. Uh, Keith Burrows over at Siri Integrated, same, you know, just trying to study and find as many mentors as I can to coach me on this stuff because I don't have any inherent ability. Um, so trying to learn the accounting side and the business side and the leadership side and the, the managing people side. Those were all things that, I mean, at Panamax, I had a nickname of Ramrod <laughs> and Jeremy, it was not a term of endearment. <laughs> my, my, my skills at getting things done within the organization were horrifying. Okay. And, uh, you know, fortunately I was serving the satellite market at the time, which was just exploding. So I was in the right place at the right time and I was able to get away with it. Right. And, uh, and so you know, I mean, I, I had a long road ahead of me as far as learning how to be more effective. I'm still working on that, about how to be more effective working with people and in groups and things like that. It's just a skill that many of us don't get taught, and I surely didn't. Yeah, that's those soft skills. It's like beyond management. It's, uh, it's a whole other thing. Um, but uh, I want to want to drill down a little bit more on how you found uh, success with that revenue uh, per head. Just Well, so- you know, we did some things. We... we um, we hired a sales trainer at one point in time, okay. about 10, 15 years ago, a guy named Chip Doyle that we met through a local NARI meeting. And mm-hmm. Chip was part of the Sandler Sales Organization, which I know uh, several people have used. I know DeVotes used it in his organization. Um, and he came in because I was the, like most integrators, I think, I was the primary salesperson. And, I'm, and, and I, we were doing maybe $3 million with about 12 people. And it was profitable and it was fine. But Jeremy, for us to do more meant I was doing more and I was probably working 50, 60 hour weeks and I was not interested in doing more. You know, I mean, I got passions. I got things I love to do and and work is one of them, but it's not, certainly not the only one. And uh, so I was trying to figure out how to delegate, mm-hmm. right? I had to get the stuff off my plate and sales was taking up a huge chunk of my time. So we hired the sales trainer. I had a, I have an employee now, an exceptional uh, guy named Brian Stang, uh, and, and Brian is a, is a one of the most people 
naturally gifted people persons that I've ever met. And he was hell bent that he couldn't sell. And uh, we hire the sales trainer and he comes in and basically he never came in. It was just uh, one hour conference call hmm. once a week. Okay. So four one hour calls a month. He charged me three grand a month for that. And I did that for six months. I spent $15,000 on this. Um, and at the end of that, if he had told me that he, he made a mistake and the price was double, I'd have paid it because it was worth it. Oh, wow. It so good. But okay. the best thing about this thing, Jeremy, was he sits down. We're all sitting down around this thing at 630 in the morning around one of those little polycom, you yeah. know, little table speaker phones. And he says, OK, rule number one, be less persuasive. OK. Rule number two. We don't care if they buy. And okay. instantly, me and Brian and, uh, and Steve and Nate, the other two guys that were in there with us, you could just see the pressure come off of those guys. Huh. Like, I don't have to have a trick. There's, And he said, Scott, how do you sell motorized shades? And I said, I ask, where do you want motorized shades? <laughs> he goes, what if they say, I don't want motorized shades? What do you say? I say, okay. There's, there's no tricks, right? I'm just there to help whatever... Whatever you want, we're going to do that. Yeah. And and so that was the beginning of my world changing because then these guys go out and start building relationships and, and then having them call them, and, which they were doing already, but a potential customer call them. They'd say, oh, talk to Scott. And, and now they got comfortable saying, oh, I'll come meet you. And they worked the process from there. And we created, obviously, I'm a systems and processes guy. Hmm. My brother Earl worked with me for the first seven years before he went on a 18 month sabbatical that was about 13 years ago and he's still on his sabbatical <laughs> okay. a surf camp down in indonesia oh uh, but earl was awesome because earl was i don't want to figure out how to do it i want to figure out how to create a system so that we can repeat it hmm. and earl was incredibly elemental early on in those days of us creating and documenting our systems and our processes for how we do things so that by the time we plug these other guys into selling they didn't have to recreate the wheel. You know, I mean, we really just went out. We had we had these little forms we could fill out to to do these client intakes. And then you just handed it to an engineer and he put it into D-Tools and turned it into a beautiful proposal. Right. You didn't have mm -hmm. to do that. All you had to do is evaluate it, make sure it looked right and then go back and present it and make sure that it fit what the customer wanted. And and again, we're doing that uh, not to go cliche, but but it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. We're doing that in the Bay Area. Yeah of tech billionaires and millionaires who want the, the coolest stuff and we get to go you know we, we're literally educating ourselves on what's the coolest stuff for your house mm -hmm. so it was awesome but th but that part you know our goal we'd written a vision statement and a mission statement we we hired consultants we wanted to build a great company from the get-go right it wasn't about making money or, or whatever it was about building a great company um and so we, we were trying to do all the building blocks that it was going to take to make a good company and trying to emulate and the, the, the guys out there that were good companies. And, and, and we had engineered environments in our market. And Randy Stearns was a, was a real guru in the industry back then because he, he, I felt, was one of the first ones to really bring a business, running a business perspective to this industry. And I think our industry owes Randy uh, a credit for that. And, yeah. and we all know the story. Randy got very aggressive and built Via, and that, that didn't happen to not work. Right. But, and he and I have talked about that since, and he's talked about, here's the things I would have done differently. But that that guy was really, really good for this industry, and he was also great about sharing. 
he would mm-hmm. go to Cedia and share how they did and what they did and take the classes. And I was sitting in them and learning. You know what I mean? So I think that that's one of the other great things about our industry is how open and willing to share people are because we're kind of a brotherhood. I don't know if I answered your question. I, I might have got sidetracked. No, no, you did. And, and the thing about Randy, he was our first cover um, for residential systems when we launched back in 2000. And I picked him because of the of the MBA uh, background. And he was funny in that everyone else I would talk to in the industry, their first thing they were into was the tech and the products and all that. And that was the last thing that he was really interested in. He was interested in the business and running the business. And um, he would leave the the passion for the tech part of it to others in his organization. So I think that was a rare thing where that didn't get in the way of him running a good business. You know, and just- I don't think I'm as pure as Randy was and that I am a bit of a nerd <laughs> and I kind of like the gear. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say I lean more towards Randy's side of I, the business is the part that fascinates me much more than the gear. And Randy had a great quote years ago where we're talking about gear or whatever. And he's, he said something about, the brand of black box that we put in the rack is about as relevant to the customer as the brand of drill we use to drill the holes. Mm, And I thought, Oh, I love this guy (laughs) because he gets it. You know, so many people were, were so passionate about it. it has to be AMX or it has to be Crestron or it has to be Lutron or it has to be whatever. And Randy's like, who cares? We're solving problems. Whose box is in the back that's doing that? Is, is up to us to evaluate and, and choose the right product for really good reasons, but we don't need to hang our hat on it. It doesn't right. really matter. I thought he understood that really well. Well, after the break, we will continue our conversation with Scott Sullivan. Do you want superior smart home automation at a great value? Shelly Wi-Fi relays by Alterco Robotics cover DC to line voltage, allowing you to control lights, outlets, appliances, garage doors, pumps, and much more. There are Shelly sensors and power measurement devices to help you measure temperature, humidity, lux, or motion, and electrical consumption from single wire to three phase with neutral. You can use Shelly with a licensed driver for Control 4, Elon, or other premium systems, as well as your customer's existing hub, voice assistant, or any platform that accepts REST, MQTT, or CoAP. Shelly can make IoT very easy. Available now at Blackwire, City Electric Supply, and Worthington, or at ShellyUSA.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Scott Sullivan, president of Sound Vision. Uh, Scott, so to con- continue on, one of the the big, um, I guess, pushes in our industry to try to make companies more uh, self-sustaining and sellable and something that you could retire from was that idea of ad- adding re- recurring revenue or a service model. Is that something that you've had to contend with as well or have you not gotten there? That's a, that's a really good question, Jeremy. And I, I've got a, an opinion on this, believe it or not. Um, it may be different than many of our, my peers, but I watched really smart guys. And I was, as I was watching this industry for, from, you know, seven or eight years at Panamax to my time in this industry, what I wasn't seeing was companies like ours getting bought regularly and guys walking away with, um, you know, never need to work again money. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if that's not happening, I, I, I guarantee you I am not the smartest guy in this industry, not even close. And, and so I thought if they're not all doing it, the probability of me doing it's probably pretty slim. And I have my econ background and, and I've always been interested in investing. 
And so my thought was, I don't need to grow and build this company to sell it to retire. What I want to do is is make a, a professional income and live below my means and squirrel away money and learn how to invest. Okay. And I again, I, I, I was able to find some mentors on that side too, some guys that I'd met at, at this local golf course um, that that I play at. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the guys were, again, incredibly generous with their time and coaching me. And so I was able to hit a few grand slams on investments, mm -hmm. you know, both in the stock market, but then parlaying that into real estate and getting into investing in uh, apartment buildings and, and other types of properties. And, and, and then we were, we bought the building that we're in now and, we're able to upgrade the building and, and we're in a small portion of the front of this building, but we're able to upgrade that so that our tenants in the back of the building cover all the costs associated with it. So we, we don't have any costs. Um, and so my goal was to kind of use those kinds of tools to set myself up for, for, for retirement. Cause I just didn't see uh, this industry being that, that kind of a model where companies are getting bought and people are walking away with significant amounts of money. And in, over a 20 year period of buying real estate in the San Francisco Bay Area, that, again, is another example of right place, right time. Um, so so that, again, I got to pinch myself. But at this point, I'm good, you know, barring a, uh, some kind of an earthquake where we all fall into the ocean. Uh, so I, I look at the recurring revenue side. I watch fascinating to me to watch everybody chase it in this industry. Yeah. And I, I could be the the dummy in the room, but I, I don't understand it. I, mm. I look at it and think I don't charge it. I don't sell recurring revenue plans. Um, because I think that if, if my mom was in another state and she was working with one of our colleagues and doing something like this, and she was a, in the income area of our typical customers and she sent a proposal over to me and said, Scotty, should I buy the, um, the support plan? I would tell her no. No, what I would do is design systems that aren't nearly as vulnerable. And then you don't need the support plan. And I, I think that would be a better answer. And that's kind of been our model. So that I, I tell my, we, we have a, a support plan built into our proposals. It's always there, uh, but it's the first year. And, yeah. and our point with that is what that says is if there's any problems in the first year, no matter what, it's our problem. And after the first year, sometimes customers say, hey, can I extend that? And I tell them, not only can you not extend it, you don't want to. Hmm. You're not going to need it. Buy service on an as-needed basis. You'll be happier. You'll spend less. We're going to be, we've got a service department that's incredibly responsive. We're going to be all over it. So it's not like you need something special. And Jeremy, I think there are exceptions to this rule. You know, I, I've got friends over, at, let's say, uh, Paragon or SAV, where you're you're serving. I know in South Florida, the same idea where you're serving vacation homes, mm -hmm. high end vacation homes. That's a different animal, right, where the stuff sits and sometimes things lock up and they come to town and they haven't used the system on a regular basis. So they don't remember how things work. I think that the concierge type services that those guys provide are necessary, but they're unique, I think, to those markets. Right. For many markets where it's somebody's primary home and you're serving not just, you know, the 0.01 percent of the customers and they're using the stuff regularly. I, I don't know that that's as relevant. We got into the alarm business for the recurring revenue and 
over a relatively quick period discovered that we hate the alarm business. <laughs> no love there. There's no passion there. And, and yeah. with the talent of my guys and the and based on that talent, the fact that I need to pay them dramatically more than an alarm company, mm -hmm. uh, we weren't being real competitive. And I would I don't want to I don't want to be in a market where I can't be competitive. Right. I would feel like I'm if I'm doing something where I don't feel like I would do business with me if I was knew what I know and was a customer, then I don't want to do it. And so that that was where we ended up with Alarm. So we we were able to transition our accounts over to an, a local alarm company, uh, Redwood Security, who's been exceptional at taking these over. And we're all serving the same clients anyway. Hmm. And and so we tend to work with each other on most of the projects and it works out great. You say about your, your responsive service department, do you find it to be uh, um kind of invasive into your personal life still, or do you have a service um, situation where it's certain hours or do you use like a company like one vision for. No, we don't yeah. do that. I love that idea. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of my colleagues do. We, we have really focused our efforts on a little differently. We, we don't like centralized systems. We don't like distributed video. Um, we find those systems tend to be the weakest link. So we've mm -hmm. tried to go away from them so that we don't get the call that says, my system is down. Yeah. Right. Because there is no system. There's a media system in the family room. There's a TV in the kitchen. There's a media system in the rec room. There's maybe a theater, but they're all independent. Um, and, you know, networks for sure. I mean, we've had a customer tell me, Scotty, I, I can live for three days without water. I need my network up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that that's become like the more essential than lighting is the network. Yeah. But, you know, we, what we did is we, so we have to answer your question. We have a service manager. We have a service manager and two dedicated service techs because after 20 years and thousands of customers out there, uh, we need it. And, and the other problem, Jeremy, is uh, we, we found ourselves, we were getting booked out sometimes two over two weeks in service, which is not okay. Hmm. And I remember talking to our service manager one time and I said, Joe, um, how many of these customers are not systems that we installed? And he said, uh, man, maybe 40%. And I said, well, make them go away. Oh. Right. Because I, I don't want to make my customers wait while we're out servicing systems that were done by others. Yeah. And he says, how do we do that? And I said, I don't, I don't know. And I said, uh, charge a higher rate. Uh, and we're in, a, in an expensive market here, Jeremy. So we're three ninety nine for a service call. OK. And and so I said, I don't let's go six ninety nine. So we were six ninety nine for a service call. And if that sounds like an outrageous amount of money, then we agree. <laughs> and, and he says, OK. <clears throat> and. So a month later, we sit down together and I said, hey, you know, how's the backlog? It's one of the things we always look at is our backlog and, and how's it working and, and, and our, what's happening with the non-sound vision customers? And he goes, um, no, it's not really working. And I said, why? And he goes, they're paying it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then the reality is that there are so many companies. I think our industry oftentimes has a bad reputation within the trades and, and, and uh and the general community at large. And, and that's a well-earned bad reputation, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, and there's so many companies that, that, like you said, the guys get in the business for, because they love the tech, yeah. but they can't run a business. And what typically suffers is servicing my past clients. Mm -hmm. That's usually the first thing that suffers because I'm so busy chasing the next deposit to pay my guys for the last project because they don't manage money particularly well. Again, how would they? They've never been trained in this. Yeah. And so our industry's full and the barriers to entry are so low right. that our industry's full of guys like that. So we, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we ran into that issue, but 
the beauty of that, and to answer your question as far as the demand on me, mm-hmm. many of my customers have my cell phone number. They're welcome to that. So I do get some calls for people that need service, and I, I very quickly make them feel special and important and make sure they know that they matter to me. And then I say, I'm going to follow up real quickly. And then I text my service manager and he handles it. Okay. You know, he, he calls them back immediately. Hey, I'm on this. But one of the things that we did that I thought was real creative, I think it was my brother's idea back in the day, was whenever somebody needed after hour service, we created an APB. So it's basically a blast that goes out to all our texts. This is APB. This customer at this address needs this service. Now that we're on iPoint, they can all these have their app. They can look it up and see all the information. Okay. But it would basically say APB for this service call. And the guys knew that if it was after hours, the first guy to claim it gets it. Hmm. Call the customer immediately and schedule to get them taken care of. And you'll get paid for your time. And the next morning when you come into the office, you'll get $500 in cash. Ooh, okay. Right. And so yeah. who wasn't willing to interrupt an evening or a weekend for $500 in cash? Yeah. And so what we found was, as opposed to hiring a an outside firm or something like that, if we had this ability, then our customers feel like superstars because they get responded to immediately by a company guy who knows their system and has access to all their their proprietary information and can service them and uh, yes, I lose money on that service call, but but Keith Esterly, who who's at HTSA that runs those relationship science classes, I know you know Keith. Yeah. Uh, Keith has a great line that the 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 service department is the referral department, and he's right. I mean, that guy is an unbelievable talent, and 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 came out and trained all our guys on how to how to make sure that people feel like they're the most important people in the whole wide world. And in our world, nobody touches more people than service techs. They go to three houses a day, typically. Hmm. So with two of those guys, if you're hitting six customers a day and making them feel like they're the most important people in the whole wide world, man, you, you just, you're just supercharging that referral base. Yeah. That's been super strong for us. Yeah, what a, what a great insight there. And I, I love listening to, to Keith speak at the HDSA events. And, uh, um, you know, I think I saw you at the Indianapolis one, uh, the more, most recent uh, event, which is in my backyard. And listen to him. He, he puts a smile on my face because he's entertaining and, and insightful at the same time. It's, uh, it's so few and far between. But Jeremy, <laughs> I, I don't mean to have my pom-poms on. But the value that Keith Esterly brings yeah. is so staggering. It's, I mean, he's he's one of the greatest trainers I've ever seen on how to create relationships within an industry and, and whatnot. And he comes from our industry and specializes it. That man is a unicorn. Yeah. He yeah. is one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. He's just, he brings so much value and the, the, the stuff that my guys use on a regular basis after, after having spent a few days with, with Keith is staggering the, 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 how effective it is. And really, it's about, it's about treating people. He's turned it, in, truly turned, turned it into a science of how to treat people the way they want to be treated so that they, they feel it, so that they feel that they're so special and important. And I'm a b- big believer that people don't, they don't know how good a work we do, right? I mean, if if a customer goes and looks at, at the gear that we install, they don't know if we did a good job or a bad job. They have no point of reference. Mm-hmm. We, we try to install it. We, we kind of have this thing that we call standards of excellence where okay. 
where we have this weekly meeting or, or now it's every other week we have an all team meeting. But at that meeting, we go around the room and every employee has a folder on the server where they share several photographs of the work they did over the past two weeks to just show creative solutions and, and just the labeling, the serviceability, the the the, the waterproofing, the, the way they, they think about every detail to just set the standard for workmanship in the industry. Because our mantra is, we don't want to impress the customer with that. They don't know. Yeah. But if one of our competitors ever comes over and sees our work, we want them to go, dang, <laughs> that's really something, right? Right, right? So our thought is that many of us chase that and think that customers should refer us because we're so good technically, but they don't know. And so one of our mantras is that we want we want to do great work technically, but what what I think is as important, if not more important, is we want to make customers feel like we recognize them, uh, uh, value them, serve them, like them, you know, just make them feel like they're the most special people in the whole wide world. Yeah. And and when once we do that, man, we create a team of zealots out there selling for us. Right. Right. And yeah, that's that... been amazing for us so that, you know, on the sales side, as the sales have been tra transitioning away from me and towards the other guys, hmm. you literally feel like you're you're showing up to a bunch of starving people and going, who wants a hamburger? Right. I mean, everybody does. Yeah. They, 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 they come to us just ready. You know what I mean? Literally, we get the call where it's like my architect, my builder, my designer told me we have to talk to you guys. Here's <laughs> the stuff we want to do. Not I want to bid. Yeah. Here's what we want to do. We need your help. Right. It, it's okay. it's just been an amazing place to be. And it fascinates me in our industry to watch how much effort people spend on marketing or traveling for work or trying to chase jobs. And I think if you, and again, maybe I'm wrong. We're, we're in a market that's just so fertile. Right, right. That we're, we're unbelievably blessed. But our, our technique of project management, as far as making not only our customers feel amazing, but I want to make their tradesmen feel amazing. You know, the, mm. the contractor working with the principal, the project manager, the on-site guy, the laborer. I want to know his name. I want to give him a sound vision shirt. I want him to <laughs> I want him to feel recognized and important. And by the way, you know, you're a partner of ours. And if you ever need anything for your house, please don't hesitate to call. We always take care of our partners. We wow. do that to the electricians, the painters, the plumbers, so that we get work referred to us from all of these people just because they know that we treat people kindly. Right. You know what I mean? It, yeah. So, so, and again, it's take 22 years to do it, but it's a really fun place to be. Well, I mean, and, and that whole approach seems like, it, especially currently, it's kind of a dying art, so to speak. It's, you don't get that experience a lot from day-to-day -day interactions right now, just because whatever it is, labor shortages or people just feeling down about whatever, um, you're getting less than you used to get from a customer experience. So you're Just talking humanity. About, yeah. You yeah. know, that the, with, I don't know if it's social media, I don't know what it is, but this, this whole connecting with people and looking them in the eye right. and, and doing things for them and making them feel recognized and special and human is something that I think is core to all of us. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't, I think people are starving for it and we're bringing that to them. And, and here's the beauty of it is that if I can bring that to you, Jeremy, and, and make you feel wonderful and special and important, 
You know who walks away feeling just as wonderful, special, and important? You do. I mean, you. Of you're, course. Yeah, you get, you give, and you you receive. You know, it's all together. Exactly right, and so that's been the greatest thing about it is that <laughs> as Keith has worked with us and we've worked on this stuff with our staff, that we're out there. Our our purpose, if you will, is as we go through the why, <laughs> is to improve lives. We and we really pound that home, but but it's it's it is the life of our customers. We want to improve their lives. But that's one group. We also want to improve the lives of our colleagues here and the lives of our vendors and industry friends and partners and the lives of every other design, build, trade professional we interact with. And the beauty of that is that at the end of the day, you just feel good because you're out there not trying to make a buck and not trying to do this and not trying to take advantage of anybody, but out there trying to improve lives with everybody we touch. I mean, it's 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 a satisfying thing that, that makes your days feel good. And you touched on another thing just now when you were talking, and that was the the uh, labor shortage, if you will, or the, the, the challenge that we have finding people. Mm-hmm. And we found that, that once we took that attitude of, of being that kind of a place to work, and we built a beautiful design center here where we show off the technology, but, but and, and that was for our customers, kind of, but mostly for our staff. You know, we have a a, a magnificent space with the the glass, the you know door fridge full, stocked full of drinks, like you're in a 7-Eleven with all the snacks. And it's all free and it's all there and it's all for the staff. Uh, and then the our warehouse is really our shining thing. You know, we we kind of have this mantra of race shop clean. If you ever been in a race shop, hmm. like Formula One race shop, where everything's just spotless and there's a place for everything, and it's it's just all about efficiency. Our our warehouse is 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 fabulous. And our website, we've made a big push to to kind of show what it's like to work here. That's maybe different than other places. And I, I'm a believer that you're you get the talent you deserve. Hmm. And so what we decided, Brian and I, years ago, and, and now Scott Sorensen, who's a, another superstar uh, here, uh, is is we've been focusing on uh, how do we change our our message or our persona to attract, to be worthy of superstars, you know? And so we wanted to make it a culture, an environment, uh, a comp plan, a benefits plan, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the type of projects we do, the type of support we give people. We wanted to touch on as many things as we could to try to be best in class so that the greatest people in the industry were drawn towards us. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's worked. I mean, uh, our, the talent we have, the, the team we have here is class and, and to the point Jeremy that I am semi-retired I mean I'm off most days at one mm. I take four weeks of vacation a quarter and there, there's not just not that much for me to do because I could do it myself or I could hand it to one of the other guys and it will get done better <laughs> right they're that yeah. good yeah, that yeah. I'm the dumbest guy here and it <laughs> has made my life uh, so much more interesting and fun and, and how big of a staff are you up to these days? Uh, there's 24 of us. Okay. Yeah. And are uh, you um, are you experiencing some of the new tech trends? I, I'll wrap up with that because uh, I've had you here for a while. But uh, I know being an HDSA member that lighting is a big push. Are you are you dabbling in lighting at all? Or are we you still- are. Uh, okay. I, I think that that's another category that I have huge expectations for. I hired a lighting designer. She was really great. Um, but unfortunately it was right before COVID. And then when we wanted to go out and present that, 
skill set to our design build community, uh, everything was closed, you know, and we didn't have yeah. that opportunity and she got impatient and left. And now it would have been a grand slam. Mm. And we have a lighting design philosophy and I need to find a great lighting designer that wants to live and work in this market. And when I do, um, we are going to set records, I think, because the we have a vision. I have a philosophy on this that I think that the, the market is craving. Mm-hmm. And so I think the amount of opportunity there is amazing. And and that's another unbelievable asset that that we as an industry have. And 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 uh, Tom Doherty. Oh, yeah. I mean, what a brilliant guy Tom is. And, and now HTSA has him on board and spearheading this initiative to get into lighting, not just a little bit, but a lot. And a few guys have gotten into it pretty well. I think that's going to turn into a tidal wave and they couldn't have a smarter guy, uh, a more able, I mean, just the right man for the job. Tom yeah. Doherty is a, another superstar that John Robbins has cherry picked and, and put in the right, right position. You know, talk about the right person, right seat. Yeah. Tom is that guy, and I have learned so much from him. And he is, I think he's gonna, you know, he's gonna deserve some kind of an industry achievement award for you know all the iterations that Tom has had in his life. But I think this is going to be his his crown jewel of of bringing us into that industry. And quite frankly, the I think the market is gonna win because I think the lighting design and the way that lighting is delivered into the residential market is flawed it's inherently broken yeah and i think we're going to help the industry fix that and and tom has been unbelievably instrumental in that absolutely well hey we could keep talking probably for another hour but uh i I respect your time and i i I, will just do this again and we'll talk it um more on the tech side and catch up with more of the uh, business as well so scott so so happy to finally connect and and chat and get caught up so uh good luck with the the holiday season as we wrap it up here and into the new year for you. And Jeremy, it's, it's been my pleasure. You know, I've been res- reading residential systems, uh, you know, my, my whole career and uh, I, I love everything you've been doing. And it's, it's fun to get a chance to just sit and chat about an industry that we both love. Well, thanks again. And uh, great, great talking to you. Congratulations on everything and all your success and uh, everything in the future as well. Been a pleasure. Yeah, Scott Sullivan is president of Sound Vision in Nevada, California. You can learn more about his company at svsf.com. That wraps up today's show. Special thanks to Pretty Easy Podcast for producing and editing this episode. If you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell.